0: Welcome to Signal Boost. I'm Zerlina Maxwell, and joining me on the show today is Shamila Chahari, who is a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council South Asia Center. She's here to talk about the situation in Afghanistan, which we've been paying close attention to. Good morning. How are you? I'm I'm doing well. Thank you. Good morning to you as well. Thank you so much for waking up early on this Monday morning. I was just talking about Afghanistan just a little bit, um, and one of the things that I was talking about is the fact that last week Jess and I, Jess is my co-host who's uh, on vacation she's earned it Um, but we were talking last week about how there was this impulse, I mean sometimes this happens in the media where people want to declare what they think a thing is very early on in the Mm -hmm. process so like Tuesday it was like this is a failure or I don't know what we were failing but it was a failure and it was compared to Saigon and other things in our history that are pretty bad. Um, And midweek last week, Jess and I had a conversation about how this is not good. (laughs) What we're watching, what we've been watching for the past couple of days, not definitely not good, but perhaps more fluid a situation than was necessarily being portrayed on the TV up until that point. As we sort of are a full week, um, removed from the images we came on air last Monday with, which was the plane uh, leaving the airport and people running towards the plane. What what has changed since that moment? Is there is there are there things that um, have improved in terms of the ability of people who want to leave Afghanistan, who are allies or translators, um, and and vo- the vulnerable that need to leave? Are they
1: Better able to find um, a way to get out. So first, let me say that um, it's very refreshing that you bring up this, um, you know, this dynamic in foreign policy analysis, which is to jump to a quick conclusion about something that's happening on the ground, um, usually very far away from where the the commentator is is sitting themselves and. It, it is one of the casualties of the profession. And I, I, I think the reason it exists, however, is because we, um, you know, we as a global community are so much dictated by, um, the images and the sound bites that we hear in the media. And so there's a little bit of groupthink that happens and it, it has, a, um, it can achieve momentum quite rapidly. Um, and, Given that this war has been so much part of our, um, just for some of us, for some it's been in the background, but for a lot of people, a very small community um, in the U.S. and in Afghanistan, it's been very much front and center. And there was a lot of anticipation of what was coming, and so I think the anticipation and the disappointment of the what what we saw unfolding led to this um, rather impulsive response that. It was a failure, but I think that it is something that needs to be dissected, uh, right? Yeah, that's exactly.
0: Yeah, go ahead. So dissect it because that's actually where where the helpful analysis is. Like, I was like, is it really productive to be like, who is to blame? I'm like, what is happening? Can we start with that? (laughs) Like,
1: yeah, and I, you know, I was asked this this um, the question. Uh, many times, like, whose fault is this? Or, the, you know, this must be the Pakistanis, this must be the US, the Russians, the Chinese. Nice. My answer is very simple. We're all active participants in this war. Ever since it started, everyone has made their decisions based on their interests, their concerns, their fears. At any step of the way, we could have, any of us could have acted differently. Um, we could have chosen a different path. But here we are, and so I agree with you. It's not constructive to do a postmortem um, in the midst of an unfolding crisis where there's so much uncertainty. And you know, to your point of like what is happening on the ground and what has changed, where things are ha- changing so rapidly. Um, every you know every hour, there's something different being reported. And so let, let's let's go to your question of what is actually happening. The the Taliban were part of uh, fairly lengthy negotiations with um, the Afghan opposition. And the United States did play a role in those negotiations for some time. But um, since the Biden administration started, you know, the, the U.S. role has mostly been to Um, you know, protect its own interests to facilitate a a safe departure and a a timely departure. And I think that they had been working on that, um, you know, meanwhile, meanwhile, the conversations between the Taliban and the Afghan opposition were not moving. They weren't going well. And so if this is a failure, um, it's a policy failure, right? What we're seeing, a a failure of this, um, you know, this diplomatic effort to bring all sides to the table. If I could critique it, I could say that, you know, maybe if the U.S. was more involved in this last stage, it could have been, it might have been a different outcome. But after seeing two decades of this, I'm much more cynical than, uh, you know, I was in, in the beginning. Um, the To the other, you know, another point of failure, I think that has to be recognized is the lack of communication between the US government and the general American public. Um, I think a lot of the information was coming out as events were unfolding and which suggests that the government the, the administration really didn't anticipate the the swiftness with which the Taliban took control of the country. I actually don't even think the Taliban expected to have such momentum. We have to remember they never controlled this much of the country when they were last in power in the 90s. So it is quite a shock. Um, the mechanics and the methodology of the withdrawal um, and the kind of the responding to what's happening at the airport was clunky and was um, what, you know, could have been better. And I think that caused a lot of upset on this side with policymakers and um folks who've served in Afghanistan who really uh, depended on Afghan allies to survive and many of whom saved their lives. So while the US government's first and foremost job is to protect American citizens and evacuate them, um, it makes us look really bad if we're leaving and we, um, you know, we, we don't even take care of the people that kept us alive. So there, the failure dialogue or that conversation is I think a lot related to that as well.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I I really appreciate you for laying all of that out. Because I think as we came on the air last week and the images were already like, you know, everybody was, oh my gosh, you know, freaking out. And rightfully so, right? I mean, those are not images you ever ever want to see. Yeah, Yeah, in any context, in any context ever. But it was also like, wait, I think we skipped like 10 steps, like of explanation of how why why am i looking at this photo like why or why am i looking at this video why does this why is this video happening
1: um, right. as
0: opposed to it's joe biden's fault this video is happening whoever you want to blame um right. in that moment um right. and i think it's so much more productive to figure out how that image came about and who is in who are in who is running towards the plane why um, right. and and how americans can be helpful in helping them like right. that's where my brain went. I was like, "Oh, wait. Well, how can we help those people? Not whose fault is it <laughs> that this is? It? I mean, right. I think my brain works differently
1: sometimes." And I am I'm, I'm with you and I'm <laughs> I'm also interested in I mean, that the how is to me the mechanics of it, right? Yeah. So, how did we get there and then how can we help? And then why? Why is it so yeah. hard? Um why does it look like this? And the the president has um, and Secretary of State Blinken have said this that um the, you know, the the SIV process the the special immigrant visa process that would have enabled um, and that is enabling a lot of the Afghan allies to come to the United States and um, resettle that process has been clunky and broken for a long time and and, and they are being honest in that regard that is a truthful statement. And, and also the it was plagued by kind of neglect in the previous administration. Um, there's also a question of resources and having enough people to be able to process um, such visas under such urgent circumstances. Um, this usually happens on the ground with our embassies. And at the moment, the embassy is not a normally functioning embassy, it's in crisis. And while they're built for crises, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, things coming their way. And so you, you can imagine the chaos for the the US bureaucrats processing visas in the, you know, in the airport. So I think that um, that's one of the whys and hows that hasn't been um, fully explained. And you, to to a more existential point, like, I, I do think this disconnect of like how and why we got here also has to do with the fact that the, the way that um, Americans approach foreign policy and global affairs is um, quite disjointed. I, I mean, mm-hmm. really we, it's my job to pay attention, but we really only pay attention when there's a big problem and it's put in front of your face on TV. And, you, and, and there's plenty of that right now of opportunity for the media to focus on that. And l- let me just say this, like, you know, unequivocally now, like Afghanistan is not the airport, right? There's a whole country there that's ex- Experiencing a lot of fear and concern and trauma from, uh, you know, some of the older generation, they remember what the Taliban was like right. in the '90s, right? So they're scared, rightfully so, and um, it's all manifesting at the airport. And um, you know, I, I, I tend to think of what's uh, unfolding in in Kabul as a microcosm of what's happening in the rest of the country. There's a lot of uncertainty and fear about what's going to happen next. People are not sure who's in charge or who to go to for help. And so under those kinds of dire circumstances, anyone would try anything to protect themselves and their families. And that's what we're seeing.
0: It's such a good point about the fact that it's a large country and that's just the airport. And so if, you know, a thousand of people being at the airport in a nation of millions of people it's really important to remember that, <laughs> that right. the images that we're seeing, you know, like if somebody showed the airport in New York and was like, this is America, you would be like, that's right. not accurate. Right. <laughs> and or, or, what happened, like,
1: or what happened at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. So People true. Say, it's that's so America, true. right? And that's chaos. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. No, it's it, no. Imagine if
0: somebody showed January 6th to somebody else in yeah. you know another part of the world and was like, this is America's at war. And you mm-hmm. only could see that image, right? Then you would be. Yeah. It's a, such a good it's such a good point and I think the contextual points about um American foreign policy are important. In terms of the international community, I remember so this has been 20 years. So like Jess and I are the oldest millennials. So sh- we were both in college on 9/11. Mm. She has an, an absolutely um you know heartbreaking and, and incredible 9/11 story because she lived on NYU's campus um oh, wow. on 9/11 um and so her apartment was downtown it was so that's a whole thing that I'm not even going to try to tell just the story cuz it's her story um yeah, yeah. but we were both like you know so this and we're like nearly 40 now so <laughs> so this is a long war that has been taking place and i was in afghanistan i was i remember being just like everyone else after 9/11 i was like i want to blow something up cuz i'm 19 you know we don't i don't know anything right. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of dumb at that age and, you know, you're sort of very much immature. Um, unfortunately the sentiment that I had as a 19 year old was one shared by our policymakers at the time. And yeah. it feels like this week and last week were the only times where people are like, wait, why did we go into Afghanistan again? And then mm-hmm. people are like, 9 oh, 11. And they're like, but why would we have been there 20 years if this was about nine 11? Um, yeah. can you talk about just the way in which Americans our goals in Afghanistan completely shifted we went in talking about 911 and retribution and Osama bin Laden and then it turned into like we're gonna build a country um you know into a democratic nation and then we then we went into Iraq and you know we know the we know the rest is
1: history (laughs) yeah yeah so So i was i had just started grad school and right when 9 11 happened so i'm a little older than you guys but not too much so i'm feeling pretty good about (laughs) having a shared experience (laughs) we um i was in grad school and i i it, it sort of um confused me because um the you know it it was obviously a foreign policy issue but it quickly became a domestic issue as well in that it translated into a lot of um, discrimination at home. So I think that um, while it was uh, something that started happening in far off lands, like the re- the repercussions of nine eleven, there was still a connection to a lot of us, but it was a confusing connection. And I think that confusion has always riddled the response to 9-11, um, both kind of in, in every respect. And so when we saw the U.S. go into Afghanistan as, in a response to 9-11 um, with boots on the ground, with you know an active military presence, I think a lot of us agree that that was not the right response. That was a failure of policy. Um, now, the, the reason and the motivations for responding, I think, were sound in that the you know Al Qaeda leadership was was in Afghanistan and they were able to plan and coordinate this um, and other um, attacks against U.S. interests from from Afghanistan and they were um, living in the country as the guests of the Taliban. Now the connections between the Taliban and the and Al Qaeda at that time were they were um, there obviously because they were on the ground and Al Qaeda was slowly assimilating into afghan life like there were you know various members of al-qaeda who were arabs were marrying into afghan families but there was no kind of command and control structure between the taliban and al-qaeda there wasn't a kind of uh, like a chain of command and so i think Mm -hmm. that's where the that's where we have to really question our leaders in in how they chose to respond right and and did we have to actually physically go into this country and put all these troops in the ground in order to uh, deal with this al-Qaeda threat? Could it have been done done another way? Now, we actually already know the answer to that question. We were trying for years before that to fight al-Qaeda around the world in a very indirect way without um, an active military footprint. As far back as the Clinton administration, and mm-hmm. um, people, I, I think a lot of policymakers found that to be frustrating because it was not as effective as dis, as you could have been in dismantling the organization. So, the, so there was there were challenges in the approach before, but the Bush administration really took it to the next level and and how right and so the in the beginning the mission was like really focused i would say in in targeting al-qaeda and building an international coalition around it but if you go back and you hear the rhetoric of the bush administration the rhetoric is actually not as minimalist as their behaviors the rhetoric is all about nation building and bringing democracy and focusing on women all of which requires like a very organic kind of involvement in the country and and a very local involvement, which we just didn't have. We could have Mm -hmm. had it, I think, at that time if we if we stayed focused on Afghanistan, but then we turned our, our attention to Iraq. Now, if you stay focused, even if the U.S. never turned its attention away from Afghanistan, could we have succeeded there? No, because nation building is not something that the United States does. We don't, Mm -hmm. you know, we're not trained or designed to do that as a military or even as diplomats. And there's no country in the world who is saying, hey guys, in the entire history of our country, like the best time was when we were occupied by foreigners and they made us like learn their culture and ways of governance. And we're so much better off for it. I've never read that, I, <laughs> never read really that case study, right? It's so <laughs> funny. It's so true. But it's
0: we never even say that. We never actually no, explain what that means. Don't say
1: that. We don't say that. Yeah. But to, to your point of like, this did evolve, right? And so at, at yeah. different points in um, the history of US involvement in Afghanistan, we did more, we did less. Um, when obama came in he he you know i think you know he had to contend with two different opinions in the bureaucracy one was we want to be very minimalist and just focus on the counterterrorism mission which was led by one joe biden his vice president and then the other the other view was we need to put into this country what we never did which was uh you know actually putting um our money behind this nation building strategy and and that Side one at the moment, and and hence we saw uh, billions of dollars going in to pay salaries of Afghan police and defense forces, and mm-hmm. um, you know, and and various bureaucrats in, in the ministries. We put a lot of money into their banking um, sector and practices. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, international development, and it, it anyone who looks at it from just with an objective eye and looks at the data yeah. and the findings would have said this is not sustainable that is a very right. logical conclusion but i think that we got wrapped up we meaning uh, the american kind of policy bureaucracy the political level of that even the outside world that of, of americans who you know see our see the country as like this force for bringing good in the world and that we're exceptional and we can do anything that right all of those things fed into this and and led to this and that's what that's why i say like we all own this like we all yeah you know, at some point there were all you know there were like after 9 11 like we all remember this like patriotic songs and videos and things on the disney channel that we're talking about the yep. flag. i mean there's you know so, we so all went, went whole hog into this and so we have to we have to all share the ownership i think
0: yeah, I mean, I think I as I was, we have to wrap, but I, I just to sort of put a put a um, a bow. <laughs> I think I'm like huh. a pin, a bow. Seven thirty. You always try to think of those metaphors. Yeah. Um, but I think you know, I I joked that you know I was 19, you know, studying abroad, and I was like, we have to bomb something, you know, like just the the naive child in me was just like, um, you know, hurt. We were all traumatized yeah. after 9/11, right. and I think that we don't talk about that part of it enough. We just talk, we, we skip over it. Um, and I guess 20 years in the future and say like, who's to blame? But I'm like, hey guys, maybe we should go back and think through how, how we even got here in the first place. So I'm so happy that we had you on this morning because I feel like I have a much better understanding um, Shamila Chaudhry, president of the American Pakistan Foundation. Thank you so much for waking up early on this Monday morning and helping us understand. Well, we're going to have you back because
1: thank one you. of the things Appreciate you
0: said you. that is true is we should continue talking about these things, not just when bad stuff happens it's on TV. I would love to. <laughs> would love to. Thank, <laughs> thank you, you so, so much. much. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Signal Boost podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with more news.